Hello, everyone. So I had a bit of a hard time actually creating an introduction to this episode, and you'll get to see for yourself once you listen to it. So basically, we used comedy as a springboard to talk about a whole bunch of other things, which I'm sure you'll find entertaining and relatable at the same time. My co-host Tommy and I discuss his experiences in comedy. He's in that world as a professional. It's high energy. Tommy is high energy. He's got lots to say. He's got some awesome stories about all sorts of comedians that you've heard of and lots of things that I never knew before and has opinions on different uh, comedic shows and things that are in mainstream media. So it's really entertaining and insightful. At the same time, there's also some real meaning there of what the experiences are for a comic and it's not limited to a comic. We can all relate to it. I know I learned a lot and I was entertained at the same time. We wound up having so much content that we're turning it into two episodes. I did my best to clean it up a bit. If there are some bleeps along the way, there'll be no surprises there. As always, if you can support us by going into the app that you're listening to this podcast right now and rate it, review it, share it, all that good stuff that's really helps us out so we can help spread and grow and do more episodes just like this one. On that note, buckle up, enjoy. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and run a specialized psychotherapy practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. If this is the first time you are joining us, welcome. And let me give you the quick intro. So Mental Filter is the opportunity for me and a whole bunch of cool and interesting co-hosts to talk about different life experiences, topics, professions all through the lens of mental health. So something that we hope is very relatable and meaningful all at the same time. I'm gonna allow my co-host to introduce himself. And as you heard just a minute or two ago, the topic today is all about comedy, both from a personal experience and a professional experience. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this more. So Tommy, welcome, thank you for being here. And please uh, tell everyone who you are. Hey guys, what's up? Uh, my name's Tommy O'Neill. I'm a stand-up comedian. I live in Los Angeles, California. I also do podcasts, uh, voiceover work, and I'm also an actor. I'm originally from Orlando, Florida. And yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much my legal title. <laughs> a man of many hats. Yeah, that's what it says on my taxes. <laughs> so I'm assuming that we're going to have a real mix of people listening who are very familiar with comedy and those who are real novices or just curious and they watch comedy here and there, whether it's stand-up or movies and such. So can you give the regular person a picture of the different types of comedy? Because there's so many layers to comedy. Again, it could be around the dinner table, you're watching TV, you're hanging with your, with your friends, and then there's the more sophisticated on TV, on movies, performing, writing, and so on and so forth. Can you give just like a brief picture of the different parts of the comedy world? Yeah, uh Kind of, because there's still a bunch of stuff even that surprises me that I'm completely unaware of. I would say the broader form of comedy is the writing form of it, whether it be a script or a TV show or a book, comic books even. Anything like that where there's comedic intent, I think you can consider that a comedy writer. Live performing comedy is way different. I think improv guys are massively different from stand-up guys. And the live performing guys are kind of arrogant in their own field. They feel like that's where you should cut your teeth before you delve into maybe an acting form of comedy, uh, which, you know, Jim Carrey's, the Will Ferrell's, that kind of stuff. The big names that everyone would know. And like even Kevin Hart, that's a stand-up comic that is now a, a household name that even my in-laws know who that is. Jerry Seinfeld's that kind of stuff where they started in a live performance and they ended up acting. It's like, I don't think Jerry Seinfeld, who's my uh, Lord and Savior, could ever be considered an actor, but he's definitely one hell of a performer and it translates onto the screen because of that, for sure. Anyways, of my mind, that's the immediate things. And then there's hosts of like late night shows and stuff like that who 
Johnny Carson is regarded as the funniest human to have ever exist on the face of the planet by most stand-up comics. So you have to regard that as comedy world too. There's a lot that it, it kind of encompasses. Yeah. And it constantly evolves because as technology evolves, there's oh, so yeah. many different... You know what? Yeah, you're, that's a really good point because YouTube and stuff like that, Twitter, Twitch, all that stuff should be considered comedy as well. The TikTok videos, all that. Because I laugh so hard at some of those videos even though I'm kind of mad that they have like, you know, eight bajillion followers. I'm like, this 12-year-old, who cares? And then I watch his videos. I'm like, all right, yeah, he's pretty funny. Okay, you got to give it to him. And technology is influencing kids faster through comedy. They have access to a database that I did not when I was a kid of just endless amounts of material to draw from and be inspired from. So yeah, you're totally right. Technology has changed the face of comedy for sure. And it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, I think, maybe for someone who's more of a veteran it could be a little frustrating, sort of like, well, I had to bust my chops and I had to work through this all. And so new technology is really cool because there's so much accessibility and it's so easy to reach so many people. At the same time, I can imagine that someone who's really had to go through the trenches is like, oh, it's just so easy. Just throw this out there and it's so unpredictable. You can throw out one TikTok video or Vine, rest in peace, you know, all these other modalities where you can throw something out and it's unpredictable of like, oh, wow, this is just goes viral. And then this doesn't. And so I can imagine someone who's more of a veteran can sort of look at it a little bit of both ways. Yeah. Well, comedies, well, I, I feel like every industry, I shouldn't try to be so narrow minded. Every industry is full of people with envy and like, oh man, this guy doesn't deserve it. This guy does the energy that's wasted on that in every field, but comedy, it's definitely soaking wet with it. There's a lot of people that look around and say, it's their fault, I'm not making it and all this crap. But generally speaking, as far as the vets go, they know in the back of their heads, yeah, there's a lot of people who get famous when they're young, but then they run out of material, basically. They run out of life experience because most material is drawn off of life experience and age. I'm not saying that 100%, but there's a point where you do tap out because you lack life experience, you lack perspective. You stop growing as a human because you're famous too young. I don't want to be pompous about it, but like, if you're not living your life, you're not going to have stuff to pump into it. You have to be doing stuff to talk about stuff. It's super kind of simple. But and also I wanted to say, I think most people have to comics have to admit to themselves, like if you ask PewDiePie, who's like that huge gamer guy, if you ask him if it's easy to do what he does, there's no way in hell he's going to say it's easy. That guy has to sit down and pump out material nonstop all the time. Give him, give him, give him. And that's his life forever. That's what he signed up to do. That guy's not going to go sell out stadiums and stuff like that and tell jokes because that's not his gig. So I think even though it seems like it's easy on the outside, their job is just as hard, if not more hard sometimes, to keep doing what they're doing. That's awesome. You said a lot of really good stuff that I'm, that I'm going to want to circle back to about where material comes from. And someone like PewDiePie, who in this world, in this profession, it's not something that you're given permission to turn off. You got to keep on going and keep on going, which is something I want to get back to. So let's back up just a quick second. How many years are you in the biz? Eight years total doing stand-up comedy, but I've been performing live stuff, not live stuff, almost my whole life, whether it be music related, art live. And I've been involved in TV production since uh, middle school all the way through college. I've just been doing stuff with camera, directing, editing, audio engineering. I've plugged myself into facets of entertainment. I just get hyper interested in something and I absorb myself on it. And then I stumbled onto comedy. So I was real comfortable when I got into it. So I got to kind of accelerate that process a little bit of the stage fright. I, I never was afraid of getting on the stage. I was just afraid of not being funny. That, that's a big difference. Like once you're comfortable on stage, then you just have to worry about the joke part of it. And I moved past that real quick. So eight years total, but like two, three, four years in, I started getting work. And then about four or five years in, I really just, I quit my job and then I could just do whatever the hell I wanted. I was booking enough gigs uh, nationally and stuff like that to where I could through a I'm skipping over a lot of big steps that happened during that process. I made it sound like it was super easy. Like I just started telling jokes at a bar and somebody was like, Hey kid, here's gigs. That's not what happened. But I, that's roughly the case. And now, not including the current 
epidemic we're in right now as a as a world whatever comedy looks like post this i don't know but yeah eight years total to answer your question in a very long way yeah who knows what's going to be what the world's going to look like after and like you said before i completely agree that all the variations of comedy is some form of acting is some form of performance whether it's you know live whether it's uh on tv and i think i would tend to agree with those people who value gutting it out in the live performance first because very simply it's a much less controlled environment when you're able to produce something on tv or on youtube or on tiktok or whatever it is you're able to do how many takes before you're putting it out there so it's a much more controlled environment as opposed to just getting out there in front of the wolves and having to put yourself out it's much more vulnerable you were able to sort of move through that of just being on stage in front of people. But uh, I imagine that if you can make it through that, then that can very easily translate into the other modalities or platforms of comedy. I appreciate the way you describe it. I've, I've been told that before. It makes it sound kind of noble, but it's not. It's like this infinite desire for me personally. I can't speak for everybody. I want to be a good comic. I want to be funny, get the attention even, like to be dead serious about it, like that selfish, I want people's eyes on me. Because once you get that, you're on stage, you get that laugh, that boom, it's like, oh my God, daddy, let me get that crack one more time. It, it, it's, it's immediate boom and you seek it out. So it is kind of like, I feel like a drug addict sometimes. It's not a noble, I'm trying to heal the world with my laughs. It's like, I have a lot of personal goals that I'm trying to get at. I like making people happy from my job. That's definitely a benefit. I think it's dope when people come off stage and they connect with me in some way. They agree with me. People love to tell me their own stories. As soon as I get off, they feel really connected because I just talked for an hour flat. So they got to know me really well. They feel like I'm their best buddy. So I get off stage. They're like, hey man, let me buy you a beer. I want to talk to you. And then they just tell me their whole life. And I like that. I'm not saying that in a negative way, but I have a lot of selfish reasons to be doing this as well. You know what? I very much appreciate that because that's being very real. And in whatever profession it is, there's some people out there who have a hard time recognizing that and owning that. I think in any business, well, take, take my profession. I'm in the helping profession, but I also am very cognizant. I'm very open about that. At the same time, being a therapist is also a business. Of course, in order to be successful and to stay in what I do, I have to care about people and want to help people. But for me to pretend that I don't gain anything out of it is just silly and it's just not fair. So I really appreciate that you own that. Yeah, you get something out of it, of course. And, you, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't think that either. <clears throat> I don't think there's anything wrong with having a business minded mentality along with an artistic minded mentality or a helping mentality or whatever it might be. In your job in particular, though, it has to be hard <laughs> when the clock starts. People have to be hurting, I think, to go to a therapist at a certain point. Now, I'm Irish. That's my background. So, like, we hate to admit when we're wrong. We hate to, I mean, my whole family, like, we don't admit when there's something wrong at all. We keep that on the down low, push it way. That's why we all die super young. You just push it way, way, way down. You drink the whiskey and it just, it keeps it all underneath you. There has to be a level where people are coming to you. I feel like they've got to be in some kind of pain. If they're paying for it, in my head, there has to be some justification where it's like, you have to charge them. You're, they're seeking your professional opinion, your professional help. Do you prescribe drugs to people? Is that, do you do that as well? No, that's not. I'm, I'm not able to do that. You know, if there's one thing about my style as a therapist is that I'm very transparent. So I'm very upfront about people. My message to them is... I am only comfortable doing this and continue working as long as you feel this is beneficial and it's worth your time and worth your money. While I know it is a business and I'm aware of that, and of course I want to support myself and my family, I'm very transparent about that. They're the drivers. I try very, very hard not to have an agenda or have, it's a strong word, but not to manipulate or anyone feel like they're obligated to continue. And if they don't come here, then, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna flounder. My goal for everyone is for them to be their own therapist and not see me in the office again. I mean, that's my goal for everyone. And that's, that's a weird business plan. Like, because my, my goal is for repeat customers. I want you to come back, see a new act. Let's keep it going. And for you, it's literally the complete opposite. You, wanna, you want them to see you enough times for them to feel healed internally or that they can deal with their own stuff 
is that a is that a thing? Are you trying to heal them, or you just you said you want them to be their own therapist? Generally speaking, you're encouraging people to kind of deal with their own stuff because most of it's not going to go away. You're going to have to deal with this for the rest of your life. You're going to have to learn how to deal with it. Fair question, and it is a weird spot to be in because it's a unique position of if it's completely business then it's not going to be good work. And if it's all work and no business, then your business is going to flounder. And depending on what they're coming in with, I think the goal is is that there's always going to be something that's going to be challenging. And if I could be, you know how the old adage of, you know, teach a person to fish and you feed them for life, there's always going to be some challenge. And if I could somehow help them and be the messenger or the conduit to helping them being able to help themselves, that's tremendous success. So to segue back into comedy, I think that comedy, laughter, is so important for someone who is struggling. They have a hard time finding that laughter. So I want to get into source material because I think that's a really interesting topic. But before we do that, you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld and you have the Jerry Seinfeld religion that you are a part of. (laughs) So what are some of your other comedic influences? I knew you were going to ask that. So um, that's everybody's question. And not to deter that, because I think it's a good question, but I always have a different answer and I want to stick to it just in case I'm called out on it. So when I was a kid, I saw Sinbad on HBO. And that's the first time I saw stand-up comedy. When I say a kid, I mean like seven years old Sinbad. And I I was like, what the hell is he doing? And it was amazing. And it was a perfect person to see because it was his animation. It was his loud talking. They added visual effects and stuff like that, which not a lot of comics do. And it was a full show. I mean, he would talk about his family. And side note, it was kid-friendly, which so many comics on HBO weren't doing back then. I mean, Eddie Murphy was on HBO back then. And that was not the same show. So I did get a good introduction. And then I got to see Dana Carvey put out his stand-up special. And that was a very animated, more improv type feel. It wasn't pure stand-up. So that was my first introduction. And when I was a kid, I told my dad, that's what I want to do. I want to do that forever. That, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I didn't know what it, what it was named or anything like that. But what I did was I memorized their acts to the point where I made my dad videotape me and I recited their entire acts. He still has these VHSs. I recited their entire acts to the camera while my dad was just behind it filming me. It was absolutely ridiculous. So that's my, that, that's probably my primary influence. And I have friends that have told me, it's like, dude, the first time I met you, you told me you wanted to be a stand-up comic. I can't believe you're doing that now. That's like amazing, dude. Like when I was 13, I would tell people that. And I don't remember ever telling anybody that. And then I look back at like my middle school, you know, yearbook thing. And I wrote it down as like my career goal. I was like, what? I, I, when did that happen? Flash forward to Louis C.K., when I graduated college, a bunch of life stuff happened to me. I grew up a lot. I grew down a lot, up and down, up and down. Got to a point where Louis C.K. was doing the show Louis. And it was kind of, a, to me, if you watch Seinfeld, you would know that Louis is like, not a ripoff, but it is a nod to Seinfeld. It is a direct correlated. It's Seinfeld. It's a deeper Seinfeld without the claps and the laughs. It's still a sitcom, though. And I, I watched it and I was like, whoa, that's stand-up comedy. And I had just so happened within a week's time after seeing the first episode, stumbling into a bar and seeing an open mic and then boom, bada, bing. Louis C.K., definitely, I have to give that the, the nod and the props. And then that was the surgence of like Bill Burr. I already was watching Dave Chappelle from way back in the day. And there, I, I hated Dan Cook. He was like my arch nemesis. So that immediately aligned me with a certain crew of comics that were like, screw the system. We're going to go on the side of it. Punk rock mentality. Like, we don't need you to tell us what to do. And I, that's that atmosphere of that open mic. And the, all that influenced me in a big way to what I'm doing right now, for sure. Thank you for that. And you bring back memories of listening to comedy. And I think that now that you mention it, that's another thing that's changed. Like, I remember as a kid listening to comedy more. So, whether it was, you know, whether you like him or not, as far as his style of comedy, I remember listening to tapes of Adam Sandler, of like the lunch lady or these different things that you had to use your imagination. And so the skill of being able to paint that picture, and again, the person aside, listening to records of Bill Cosby, you know, it's just painting that picture and being able to have that visual in your head feels so different than when you're watching something. A hundred percent. And we, uh, I don't know how old you are, but the nineties was a perfect era to grow up 
for comedy. And it, it was such a surgence for Comedy Central. They had special after special after special. And there was so much audio available. You mentioned the Adam Sandler tapes. I remember passing those around in middle school and it was like the coolest thing to listen to. It was like, what? When you heard it, it was the R. Cheech and Chong. What my dad described, because I showed my dad the Adam Sandler thing, and my dad was like, you want to hear something funny? He busted out a Cheech and Chong record. My dad was great. He it totally encouraged me to be funny all the time. I would start lying to my dad. He knew it was a lie. He didn't stop it at all. He was like, oh, yeah? He would start asking me questions about the lie to encourage me to lie more, because he knew I had to, because it was a made-up story. He's like, oh, yeah, what was, what was the guy's name? Huh? What was he? And I would have to just be backpedaling. And I love, my dad was a great, but he showed me a uh, Cheech and Chong right at the perfect time. And it, it, you're right. The audio element of comedy is absolutely hilarious. It brings an imagination element to it that your brain works to hypnotize somebody with just audio and you're getting their brain to work how you want them to work. Everyone's surfing the wave. It's really cool to do that. It's, it's really brilliant. I think it's a, definitely an art. It's a certain skill set of being able to sort of paint a picture with words. Now, not to be a downer, you know, yeah. comedy is fascinating to me because there's so much benefit to comedy and to laughing. And so there's the personal experience. And you mentioned being a kid. And I feel like every time I've heard a comic, you know, talk about how they got into it, everyone seems to magically have this like story of, well, I was in fifth grade and I was the class clown because of X, Y, and Z. And then I knew that I was going to be a come a comic. You know, it's, it's funny that like everyone sort of ha has to have this like childhood story. But that aside, there's, and you tell me, I feel like there's a double-edged sword of comedy. So comedy is something that's super beneficial. I think it's vital to laugh and there's science and research into physiologically what it does for someone when you laugh. Really? And I also feel like you mentioned earlier about where you draw material from, where you draw content from. Even if you could come up with stuff for a little while, if you don't have life experiences, eventually it's going to feel disingenuous. It's not going to be real and you're not going to be able to create solid content. So what that means is that some of the comedy and some of it's dark or some of it's making light of dark is pulling from pain, is pulling from darkness, pulling from really deep challenges. You know, the most obvious example that people listening are familiar with is probably Robin Williams, who had this, I don't know him, I didn't know him. It's not fair to say like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of, well, there was his personal life and what he struggled with. And then there's the persona that he gave over in his performances and his energy and his acting and all that. And then obviously he was struggling. So can you talk a little bit about where material is pulled from and sort of the both sides of that coin of happy stuff and then also dark stuff? Yeah, I'll try. That's a lot. And I'll try to get to all of it because I think it was a good question. I, I have to start off with Robin Williams, though, because just to be specific, maybe not everyone knows this. He was doing cocaine like the majority of his life. And what that had done to his brain at that point was depleted so much necessary chemicals that he needed to be happy that, I mean, he was, he was living with a lot. And it had brought on Parkinson's disease. And that had a lot to do with his suicide. It wasn't because he was sad and mopey guy. And the cocaine started in the early stages of his fame when he was more of an improv guy, less of a stand-up guy, where he would just kind of like channel stuff and just start rattling things off. So what would happen is he would hear another guy's joke and then accidentally say it on stage when he was on Johnny Carson. And the guy would be, he would get his joke stolen from him right in front of, it's like, you can't do that joke anymore because so many people had seen Rob Williams do it, that when you do it, you're the thief. It's insane, that kind of stuff. So Robin Williams was like ostracized from the comedy community in a lot of ways. The one thing that he would do, though, he wasn't a total Carlos Mencia situation. He would send a check to the guy and he would buy the joke essentially from him. And Robin Williams lived with a lot of heavy stuff. He was dealing with a lot of stuff that he put on himself. And it wasn't just like, in my opinion, it gives comics a bad look like weren't these sad mopey guys who, you know, we're just taking our anguish on stage. It's like, nah, dude. 
we're hyper versions of ourselves. So if you're angry, which I'm more of an angry type of human, and I'm more of a, like, you can get me heated, that's when the best funny comes out of me. And that's just my personality. That's because my mom is a maniac, and we are almost the same person. And me and my brother, I, this is why I think genetics has a lot to play in with stuff. My older brother is just like my dad, whereas me and my younger brother are just like our mom. We're rage-driven humans. We need the, the heat of the fight. And that works for me. Whereas there's some people who are sad, mopey, and connect, that works for them. There's other people who are like happy and they can bring that to stage and that works for them. Everybody has their own gimmick. Everybody has their own thing. And we're all human and we all feel feelings, but I don't think it necessarily has to derive from pain and anguish. Now, if my wife pisses me off, some of the best stuff comes out of that. And it's not intentional. It can't be intentional. She just has an opinion or plays a YouTube video. And I'm like, what the, are you serious? Is that what people think nowadays? And I just go off and I'm like, oh my God, where's a pen? Where's a pen? And I just start writing it all down. That's the best fuel for my fire. But I don't, I use my anxiety and I use, or whatever you want to call that. I don't even know what anxiety is, to be honest with you. And I, I, I had that question. I guess I can get to that next. But my material is derived from silly, happy thoughts. I think Dave Chappelle, although Jerry Seinfeld is my Lord and Savior, Dave Chappelle is Jesus Christ, okay? He's the guy that has died for our sins. I know that Lenny Bruce, you know, long live the king, no doubt. Lenny Bruce is the king. That's a different, he, he's the Holy Ghost, okay? If you're going to call it, he, Lenny Bruce is the Holy Ghost. Dave Chappelle is our Jesus Christ. He has died for our sins so many times. He turned down hundreds of millions of dollars to die for our sins, and we don't pay this man respect at all. I mess with him, like everybody, since I was a kid. Since I was like 12 years old, I've been watching Dave Chappelle because he's been doing comedy since he was 13. That dude is all about making the serious silly. Making that giant left turn where it's like, is this serious? Eh, no, it ain't. Am I talking about Bill Cosby? Nope, I'm gonna talk about chocolate ice cream. Eh, like it, it, he's gonna mess with you all the time because that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to get up there and start doing this monologue about how sad your life is. Nobody paid $10 at the gate to hear that. Shut up and make us laugh, dumb dumb. I love that. That's a great way of putting it. I love your description of we're hyper versions of ourselves. That's a great way to put it. And Dave, if you're listening, <laughs> I'm assuming you're not. I mean, give give some props. No, he's listening. He saw, he saw it was you and he's listening, bro. <laughs> and I thank you for clarifying that about uh, Robin Williams. I, I can say that I didn't really know that. And Fair enough. And people are listening just to, it would be unfair to sort of paint comics in that broad, you know, brush stroke that all comics are like that. So my takeaway listening to you say that now is that it's unfair to assume that a comic needs to have this deep, dark demons that they have to pull from in order to create material in order to be funny. There's so many openings. There's so many possibilities of how to get to being funny doesn't have to. Now you could use that and you could turn something dark into something funny and you could pull from pain and rejection and loss. There's actually, I don't remember his name. I apologize to him. There is a comic now who I believe has a Netflix special and is called The Great Depression. Does that ring a bell? Mm -mm. No, there's so much stuff out. I, I can't yeah. even keep so, up. And so he used his struggle with depression as uh, and turns it into his bit, his you know his presentation. And you reminded me of well, there's a whole nother way to come about it, like uh, Stephen Wright, who's very like monotone one-liners, which you know a lot of people find funny. Of uh, very dry. Avant-garde comedy is probably my most respect of all comedy forms. It is the hardest to pull off. You have to keep that act going. The Andy Kaufman's. It's like the Norm McDonald's. Norm McDonald will mess with you for years and you won't know if it's a joke or not. And that's the funniest thing on the planet to me. It's the same with Andy Kaufman and Stephen Wright. It's like, is he serious? Dude, if you don't get it, leave, man. This is some of the most genius thing you're ever going to see in your life. Stephen Wright's a god. But he's also like, he's like playing a avant-garde version of Rodney Dangerfield. He's doing like an art version of him. And I, I love his take on it. But Rodney Dangerfield is the man. And that's the most jokey joke man ever. It's like, I don't think he was shown no respect. Rodney Dangerfield, if not anything, was shown respect 24-7, man. People regarded that dude. He would show up and literally at in his gigs and have a robe on. He was notorious for this. If you wanted like a meeting with him, he would show up for a movie. They were pitching him a movie to star in. He would show up in a bathrobe and sit there, spread his legs, and just let his hang out in front of everybody just to watch and be like, yeah, what's up? I'm the king. What's up, baby? 
that is not who it, I just love that. It's like, that's, it's not what it seems. There's not this sad baby thing. If anything, nowadays, because of guys like Joe Rogan and even Chappelle, who's like ripped now, there's this movement to like be in physical shape and good mental shape because the sharper you are, the better your craft is. And once that message got out and it's like, that is a good message and everybody's jumping on that train. You're seeing comics slim down, stop being and drinking their faces off and doing as much drug as they can. Like a lot of people are doing that more and more. So it's like, it's kind of the flip of what most folks think. I, what I think, I don't know what people think actually. I'm an idiot. Well, as, a, as a mental health professional, I'm really glad to hear that. I think yeah. overall that's, that's better for people. And it's interesting you say that about Rodney Dangerfield. And so it's basically, it's almost like a persona that you have to commit to. So it's almost like method acting, I guess, that you really have to own that. Some guys. And, yeah, some guys. And you have to really stick with that so I'm glad you brought that up because I actually had this question. This may sound like a naive question because you are a performer. We'll stick to live performance. When a comedian is sharing something, whether it's a story or whether it's an opinion, you definitely are pulling from real life experience. Like you said, my wife pissing me off and things like that. But how much is, how much is you and how much is there because you're hoping that the audience is going to like that? If you start going down the, you hope the audience thing, you got to know the audience thing. I, you know, it's funny, but like, I'm not saying something up there because I, I want to make them believe in me. I'm up there because I want to make them laugh. I will say whatever I want to make you laugh. I'm not going up there with a message or anything like that. However, I'm not watching the news going, all right, man, how can I feel, you know, <laughs> righteous today? And I'm going to write a joke. That's not how I work. I hear something or I see something or I'm walking around and something happens and then the joke comes out. Or I sit there and I'm writing a whole bunch and then I'll kind of like mine for jokes within the writing. I never sit down with a motive. The joke just has to come out. And then I paint the picture around the joke, as funny as that sounds. So like I have a joke about uh, Superman if he were to land and he wasn't white. He landed in Kansas in a farmer's backyard. I put in what I believe in that. And I really like Superman. And it's kind of like a take on my opinion of Superman, how fragile his story is, because it's really a bad story. The whole background story of Superman is pretty much garbage. But I do put what I believe in society because I make the Kents react like, oh, my God, that's not, that's not an alien. That's an illegal alien. And they're more mad. That's an, it's an illegal alien and then it's an alien, you know, because, and that joke is set up. I do voices and stuff like that, but it's not, it's funnier than that. Trust me, guys. The buildup behind that is not with intent, but it is what I think is funny because I've been to parts of this country where people do believe that. And there's signs on the side of the road that say that kind of crap. And it's like, what? There's stuff in this country. I, I don't think enough people travel, but there's, I don't know if that answers the question. It, it does answer the question. And I guess maybe a fair way to say it is that there's definitely a, piece of you or a piece of what you believe in it and then you're building around that and you're painting that I imagine you have to embellish things and you have to present things in a way that you know people are going to laugh out loud and by the way for people listening Tommy is really funny and I am laughing but if I would laugh out loud at everything he's saying then you wouldn't be able to hear what he's saying so I am laughing <laughs> and he, he is funny so it does answer that question that there is a piece because I guess sometimes I hear you hear a comic and you know of course they got to make up stories or something to to use or what they believe in it just sometimes feels like you have to be a chameleon to like okay well I'm here there's a, I think there's a difference probably if you're in Kansas or in East Coast or West Coast what types of crowds there are these sort of have to cater a little bit to the type of crowd that there is no I don't so that was an early goal of mine is that like I a headliner took me on the road when I started really working and he took me on the road. We went everywhere, all over this country. That's the most traveling, the most seeing I've ever done probably to this day where it's like we were in his car. We did it old school, baby. And my goal internally was like, I'm not going to try to change my act, man. I mean, I'll change it like my energy level. If the crowd's big, I can deal with that differently. If the crowd's small, I'll deal with that differently. If they're talking to me, I'll deal with that. If they're heckling me. If they're not engaged, if they're older, that's different. You know, that's a different vibe, but it has nothing to do with region. I'm not the kind of guy that like drives into a state and I'm like looking around trying to write a sign joke or something like that about, you know, some weird city that I saw on the way. I'm not doing that. Like my goal is to make my jokes funny. And also I heard this early on. I had no idea who said it, but I totally believe in it. 
Oh, Colin Quinn said this. Not to me. I saw it on something. Okay. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. I saw him say that if you're making more than 90% of the audience laugh, you're doing something wrong. You should never be trying to hit 100% because you want to piss off some of the people with what you're saying. And you want to make it just smart enough to where not everybody gets it. Because if it's too dumb, then it's like, come on, bro. Anybody could have thought of that. But if it's too smart, nobody's going to get it. So you want to get it in that sweet bridge line where uh, Johnny Carson was God at this. People didn't know if he was liberal or Democrat. He would go ham on anybody. It didn't matter. Left, right, in the middle. He would literally take you down and it would leave people questioning. And that's kind of what you want people to do when you get off stage is not knowing 100% where you stand because that's not your goal. You're not up there to be a politician. I had this bit back in the day where I would just like ramble on about how we all need to be together in peace and stuff like that. And I'm waiting for the jerk line. And I'm like, listen, the point I'm trying to make is that Bruce Jenner is an asshole. Okay. You guys understand what I'm trying to say? And this is like back in the day before like pre Caitlin, like kind of transitioning at that time. So now it's, I wouldn't say it. Anyways, I got off stage and this guy came up to me and he's like, Hey, what did you mean by that Bruce Jenner thing? And I was like, what? He's like, my son's a transgender, you bastard. And I'm like, whoa, okay, take it easy, pal. It's got nothing to do with that. Like, Bruce Jenner just ran somebody over and killed somebody and got away with it. I was talking about that. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you don't want to get yourself wrapped up into too much of what people are thinking. You just want to go up there and do, try to make people laugh. And it's funny you say about you have, it has to be smart enough, but dumb enough. That's a really good point. I would never be able to make it in that because you can ask my family all the time. I crack myself up, but I'm the only one who's laughing at it. So. <laughs> So I think it's like really funny and, and, you know, really smart humor, but like nobody's laughing. I think I, that, would be, that would be my obstacle because I would get stuck in that. So you just nailed it right on the head. My job is communication. Like a lot of people have these thoughts, you know, but it's like communicating it because a lot of the reaction is like, oh man, yeah, man. Like, oh, I was thinking about that last week. You know, it's like, it's the ability to communicate it in the funniest way possible. And then when you're developing brand new thoughts that no one came up with, that's when you're hitting in that sweet zone, baby. And you're just, that's all cylinders. That's when it's cooking. Yeah. And one really positive that you mentioned earlier, which I really like, is that for some comics, well, you can only speak for yourself, it's actually really, really healthy to be able to channel some of the stuff that you are dealing with right into your comedy. So whether it's anxiety or whether you're, like you said, you're more the the angry type, you have this awesome outlet that you actually get paid for to be able to channel all that into something. And then people laugh too. And, you know, so that's, there's a real positive side to it. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the challenges, sort of the trajectory. So there's the lifestyle, which can be nomadic, I guess is, is a good way to put it, sort of on the road and small places, big places, different venues, and then the ups and down of things going well, things not going well, whether it's within an act itself or whether it's over the course of a tour. So I imagine there's a lot of highs and lows and rejections and adulations and So speak a little bit about those challenges. And for people listening, again, the whole purpose of us talking is to use these real experiences so that we all can really gain and relate. Even if you're out there and you're not a comic and I'm not a comic, I feel like I can relate to a lot of things that Tommy's talking about of these experiences. Tommy, I'm I'm curious to hear you talk about sort of like those ups and downs, trajectories and challenges and so on and so forth. Yeah, I like my wife. So I'm one of those people. Um, I, I, I piss people off at parties. Uh, they, don't, they don't like hearing that. They're like, oh, no, you, you, you hate it. It's like, yeah, there's parts of her that I can't stand, but that's what makes it a fun marriage. Like if you just 100% liked your wife, that's a boring marriage. And she's probably cheating on you for the record. Like she's lying to you. There's dead bodies in the backyard on some kind of level. Let's be honest, bro. Because she's not showing you something. You know, you, you, you can't love 100% of a person in the, the way. Anyways, I don't get lost in that. I like my wife. I like hanging out with her. So I've turned less into less and less into the nomadic life and us having a combined income has helped that and living in Los Angeles has reestablished goals of mine that aren't necessarily, I want to live on the road my whole life because I got exposed to that early of like road dogging it. And I got exposed to some guys that don't have a house, don't have a savings, don't have anything. They just got gigs and they bounce to bounce to bounce to bounce. Are they gods on stage? Yes, undoubtedly. But I think that there's a middle ground. There's the guys like Doug Stanhope, which I'm sure not a lot of people know about, and that's the way he likes it. And if you're a comic, you know who Doug Stanhope is, and if you don't, you don't. And he sells out everywhere he goes, and he's, he's an old-school guy. He's a gangster. And I opened up for him, and he was exactly who I wanted to be. He was, he was controlling the whole thing. 
He was getting the door. He was getting merch. He controlled the money of that night. And there was people pounding down the door to get into that show. That's exactly where you want to be, that middle ground, where you can control how often you leave your house and how often you don't. That's a real big goal of mine is to do that consistently throughout my entire career. And it's hard as hell to do that because you get these offers for gigs and they're like right now. And then you line them all up and you're like, man, that's three months where I'm gone. That's insane. And when that has happened to me, it is like, it sucks because the crowds are your only friends and you want to stay away from everything that's bad as far as like spending money. So, you know, I have casino gigs and stuff like that. It's like, I don't, I'm not a gambler. So I'm out of the casino. The cigarette smells horrible. It sucks after a while. But I mean, I'm not going to act like telling jokes for a living sucks. Like how, how dare I say that? My brothers and my dad are firefighters and my other brother sells insurance and like they work. They bust their ass. You know, it's like I, I put together a, a, an act. And if I want to do bad, it's because I want to do bad in terms of I'm doing new jokes. I'm doing new material. So I'm at the stage where I have enough good material where it's like, I, if I'm not feeling good, I can just go back and get on my material that I know that works and just beat them the hell over the head and make them all laugh and do my job like a man and walk away from it. And I'm not saying anything about girls because I think if you're doing comedy, you're a man in that moment. Got it. So you mentioned how maybe earlier in your career, it was harder to resist taking like different gigs, even though there was a major cost to it, whether it was time and travel and family and all that. It's really tempting. I guess it's really hard to resist that. Do you find, not necessarily about yourself or maybe other comics, is there times where it's hard for comics to resist strong word to say selling out but going beyond what they're comfortable with so whether it's a certain gig or a venue or certain material where there's like a pressure to go there but because maybe it will produce something but it doesn't really jive with you is there that Mm. struggle there at all Yeah. I mean, I've had to definitely turn down gigs where I'm like, I can't tell them that I could do that. That's messed up because I would be lying. Particularly like clean shows. Guys who are like, no, 100% like children can sit in your show. I'm like, bro, I can clean up the cussing. I can do that, but I'm not gonna, you have no idea how many times I show up to a clean show, a quote unquote clean show. And then I get there and people are like, all right, man, so you can do whatever you want up there. I'm like, I can do whatever I want, the host. I'm like, they told me a clean show. Like, man, this ain't a clean show. Do whatever you want. I'm like, all right. And then I just do whatever I want. I try my best to navigate that personally. If you can't do the time, do not sign up for that. I would never do that to myself because whatever you think you have, you have about half of that. And you need to be real with yourself what A-plus material is. And you have to know exactly how long of an act you could do. And a headlining show is an hour long. And if somebody doesn't show up, you have to be ready to do, guess what, an hour and a half. If one of your acts doesn't show up because he got in a car accident. So if you show up unprepared and you're looking at the sound guy who doesn't know how to tell jokes, you're like, what do I do? It's like, no, man, you got to be kind of ready for that thing. So you should never sign up for something you're unprepared for because not only will you lose the position, but they all talk to each other. All those bookers, they hate each other, but they all talk to each other too. And if they want to, they'll get you banned from a lot of like, bull crap gigs. And if you stop working for a couple companies, luckily there's enough in comedy to where I think you can definitely get away with that at a certain point and you, you could sliver your way back in. But I certainly wouldn't do that. And I'm sure that all my friends navigate that a lot. I've heard friends tell me that they turn down stuff like, I won't do cruise ships now. I got in with a cruise ship agent and it was like good money. That's what I could talk about that. It was good money, really good money for not a lot of time. And I was like, wow, that sounds very interesting. My friend had just done it. My friend was just on Jimmy Fallon. Shout out to Sean Finnerty, my boy. And I don't want to get him into trouble. Uh, <laughs> oh, whatever. So he was just on Fallon, hooked me up with this booker. And now with this whole Corona thing, man, I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I don't know if I'd be good on a ship for that long. I'm, I'm worried about throwing up and all that stuff. It's like, it's not even the comedy that I'm not down to do. It's like I, that living environment sounds so horrible. And luckily I'm at a point where it's like, I look at that going, that's not going to do anything for my career in the long run other than put money in my, my account. It's like, that's not worth the two weeks. I'd rather go stand in front of the comedy store for two weeks. So they think I'm worth something and then put me up on stage there. That's way more productive as a, that's why I'm out in LA. You know, if I was in Florida that I would do the cruise ship thing, but, but also I respect people who are trying to pay their bills too. Yeah. And that speaks to being able to take care of yourself while also producing. And I think 
yeah. whoever's listening, you you some, you have to try to figure out that balance. And whether it's, I don't think this is good for me, or whether I would be lying to myself if I thought that I could do that, or whether I disagree with something that you're expecting me to do, there is that skill of being able to say no. And it's a little bit of a dance to say no, but also not impede your career. Now, can you speak a little bit to the high and the low of, you said earlier about when people actually laugh, off stage and on stage, it's an amazing feeling. So to describe that, but also how have you dealt, maybe it's a little easier now that you're, you've been in it, you've been in the game a while, of when it bombs or when it doesn't go well. So it might be some sort of rejection or there's just critics or there's hecklers. So the highs and the lows of the experience of performing comedy. I think being too invincible in comedy sometimes for me and individually, it's like a bad thing. So like if I'm doing too, too, too good for too, too, too long, I can really mess my head up and think that I'm like invincible. And then when you get kicked in the out of nowhere, it's like, Oh, what the hell? And that can really mess you up in the head. So you got to kind of chop yourself in the before they have a chance to chop you in the the way to do that is to tell new material. And that kind of puts you at ease when you're like, it's like, dude, your material's really sharp because you've been doing it for a little bit. So like, that's why it's where it's at. Go ahead and tell a new joke. See how funny you are in the midst of your good set. Do it out of nowhere next to your A material. Just tell a brand new joke. See what happens. And it's gonna bomb, man. People are gonna be like, what happened, Tommy? What happened? That's how I try to keep myself in the now. However, the low lows where I'm not trying to bomb and I think it's good stuff and I'm going to like, you know, like a showcase or something like that. And I, I wrote some brand new stuff and I make the mistake of like starting my set with the brand new stuff. I got 10 minutes and it's like, I, I just, I'm not into it after like 30 seconds. I forget punchlines. I forget this. It's like as Zen as you could possibly be where you're like, take the goods with the beds, bro. Dude, that hurts me for weeks, man. For freaking weeks oh it hurts your morale even if you do good the next night it messes with your head man like two weeks ago you were like bro man i'm never bombing baby and then it happens it always happens and then it just messes with your game it just it shows you how human you are it is the goal is to be zen take the bombs exactly as you would the victories it's hard to do that honestly i mean i'm not gonna lie and say it's like oh bro i got it down man nah dude it messes me up just like it messes anybody up if they take their craft serious enough right right and i think anybody can relate to that you know the old sports you know not getting too getting too high on the highs and not getting too low on the lows and trying to not let that define you and it's a little cliche but I guess there's some truth to that of take the successes and understand that the lows will come. Try not to let that define you, but acknowledging that, yeah, that sucks. <laughs> let me, I, I don't know if you saw the last dance or if you're a basketball fan at all. The ESPN. I see the last dance. Yeah. I grew up in Chicago, my friend. Okay. Okay. Let's this go. Let's like, go. This is my, this is my childhood. Let's go. Let's and go. that um, sports topic was always so interesting to me. I can yeah. spend an hour and a half breaking down the mindset of an elite athlete and actually did an episode once with a sports psychologist. Yes. Talked about yes. that a little bit. So they use the lows and I need to know personally if that's healthy. I take what I have and I jam it and it ends up positive, but it hurts me mentally for so long. I don't know if it's good for me in the long. And I, I was, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan, but he take, he took his beatings on the chin and was like, I'll see you next year. And like that mentality that made him who he was, man. And I look at that like, yes, that mm, 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 I love that in a man. I love that in a human. I love that in a champion. I don't know. You can't deny that it works, but is it healthy? That is a great, great question. And I have a similar question. Not only did he take it on the chin, he looked for it. He needed the fuel and he looked he made for it up. any slight of, you know, it's almost like, please slight me, tick me off. Come on, because I, yeah, oh, I'm going to use that. And so I'm sure there is a cost benefit and none of us will ever know. None of, you know, it would be so interesting to be a fly in the wall. There's got to be some cost to that because could you turn it off? Could you ever turn it off? You need to demand this. I cannot lose. And so it's got to hurt when you don't. One thing that I talked about with this sports psychologist who does work with some elite athletes, and it's not surprising that once you hit a certain level, it's not about the athleticism, it's about the mind game. And he mentioned how one of the things that they do is, is exactly what you're saying, is that not that they're perfectionists, but they immediately turn that into, okay, what am I going to do with this? So I think he referenced the LeBron James uh, post-game press conference and 
had like a triple double, but he missed like six shots. And like, that's what he was focusing on. Right. Now, it didn't seem like he was focusing on it to knock himself down, but he so quickly moved into, okay, acknowledge that. Now, how am I going to use that to then springboard to grow, to get better from it? So there's healthy parts to it. Because I think if you pretend that, oh, nothing, like, you know, it didn't bother me at all. That's, you mentioned the Irish blood in you of trying to not acknowledge that something's there at all. To that extreme, it's, it's not helpful because you're just fooling yourself. And it's somewhere in you. Just because you pretend it's not there doesn't mean it's not there. At the same time, not getting stuck in that, that, oh, now that defines me. When I work with people, it's about trying to be really objective observers. So not giving more meaning to something than is actually there, but also not giving less meaning. So mm. if say you say a joke doesn't go well, say a whole set doesn't go well. So be objective about it. Did that set not go well? You bet. Does that mean that I'm not funny anymore? Well, what kind of support do I have for that? What about all the times where sets did go well? Right. And so and then using that experience as, okay, how am I going to use this as a way to grow, as a way to get better? So it's not this like all or nothing. So it's really somewhere in between. That is the most eloquent way I've ever heard it put. And I've just heard a couple people talk about it, like a Zen Buddhist that they just, you know, like a corner at the airport, they kind of like, you got to take the winds with the, the way you said it was a lot better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to more internalize it that way. The worst part of the gig is the bomb. And the best part of the gig is the bomb because you learn so much in that moment of what you did wrong. If you listen to the recording and you genuinely take it for what it was, you learn so much in that moment for exactly what happened and what even happened in your day. Take that for account too. If you didn't sleep right, eat right, all that crap goes along with it. It can be a good thing or a bad thing. What is anxiety? That is a great question. How much time do you have? Uh, I have all day long for this one. Cause I just want to know, like when people wake up in the morning or they feel like, you know, I'm, I'm scared about something. I had a weird dream. Is that anxiety or is like, is it such a broad thing that it defines any spooky feeling you have in your tummy at a time? My dad would constantly, he was a man's man. So he's just calling you horrific things that you couldn't call any kid today to man you up in a bunch of different ways. And my internal voice is saying that, but how much of a broad spectrum is anxiety? I guess a better question. And with that wonderful question, we will conclude part one of this episode. Please do not hesitate to go right into part two. Enjoy.